Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, a podcast that explores the greater world of uh, tabletop wargaming or tabletop gaming, board gaming, maybe even a little role-playing game, gaming, but gaming in general. Um, I've said on this podcast many times before that we're kind of in a, a little bit of a, a gaming renaissance. There are so many good games out there for us to spend our money and our time on that um, I just it feels like there's a lot of things to talk about. Uh, and that is what this podcast, Cast Dice, is all about. Uh, my name is Brad, otherwise known as Old Man Morn. And uh, me and my guests, even though it's terrible English, I just taught my students never to do that <laughs> just Friday. Um, my guests and I discuss some of the games or gaming trends or big things in the gaming industry that interest us. Uh, now, we have been on a little bit of a bolt-action run of late, and you'll get some more of that tonight, uh, but I think we're also going to talk about a few other bits and pieces. Now, if I was to say to you, one of the greats of bolt-action podcasting, there are a few people you would probably think of. Um, you might think of, I don't know, Judson, uh, Dano, sort of the, the godfathers of uh, bolt-action podcasting. Uh, you might think Patch or... Brian or, you know, the the original Ghost Army crew. Um, you might think of the Bacon Burgers. You might think of the original LRDG posse, so to speak. Um, God knows you wouldn't think of me. But there's another big face, another big voice in the dark, in the pantheon, that all of you should know. And if you don't, to quote someone from his show, you need to take a really good, long, hard look at yourself. Sam from the <laughs> Down Order podcast. The one, the only. <laughs> Welcome to Kaz Dice. Thanks, Brad. You really are the master of the understated intro, aren't you? <laughs> uh, go big or go home? I don't know. That's, yeah, that's, uh... that's your style, isn't it? Uh, thank you very much. Deeply humbling. I thought when you said take a long, hard look at yourself, you were going to introduce Dave Hunter. <laughs> Actually, I thought you'd made a mistake. You got the wrong one. Oh, no, we got the other one. <laughs> no, no, yeah. no, no, no. Hey, as much as yeah. I'd love to talk to Uber, uh, I think... Uh, there was no mistaking that I was having you on tonight because uh, for the you are uh, well suited for tonight's topics. But uh, before oh, we before we get to uh, tonight's big topic, um, I think it's time we we do a little talk about what we've been up to. Now I know you've been up to quite a few things, and we should talk about that. But I haven't actually. <laughs> it's funny since starting this show and going to a weekly format. I don't think I've actually said what I've been up to properly since uh, uh, August. So um, I'm I'm so not going to stuff to get off your chest. Well, one or two things, but uh, I, I don't yeah. I don't I'm not going to get boring. I will keep it short. But before <laughs> I do that, let's talk about what you've been up to, because I've seen a ton of pictures um, on social media of the things that you've been doing. Talk us through a little bit about where you've been at. Oh, I've been doing all sorts. I, um, as some people might know, if they listen to my podcast, um, uh, download a podcast. I, I had a baby fairly recently back in October, so the, the projections weren't good. But actually, uh, my my wife's been a trooper, and she's been affording me the time to uh, to keep up with all my different hobbies. And one of the things that's really helped is uh, I've I've joined a new gaming club, local gaming club, on a Thursday night, and there are so many people there doing games you know every single week posting up things that they're into and i'm 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 sort of dabbling in one or two different systems that i hadn't done before i've been playing some of the two fat lardies games are you familiar with those yes i am um they do chain of command yeah 
They do, yeah, which is probably the one that World War II players would be uh, aware of. Uh, they do they do loads of games, actually, all historical mm-hmm. off the top of my head. I don't think they do any non-historical ones. They, they tend to have a slightly comedic slant on things. You know, mm-hmm. there'll be characterful little sort of... Uh, almost role-playing elements to their different games. One of the other ones that I've been playing quite a bit with Dave Hunter is called uh, Shot Practice, which is a it's a kind of a Black Powder-era mm-hmm. game. We've been playing it, uh, French and Indian Wars sometimes, but mostly in the Napo- Napoleonic era. And they're really good games. They, are, they have a different philosophy to something like Bolt Action. And I wouldn't say it's better or worse, but you turn up for a game of Bolt Action, don't you? And you, you know you've got six, maybe seven turns... But there's mm-hmm. a set turn limit and strict victory conditions around which you have to, you know, send your troops and uh, and and plan your strategies. And chain of command and sharp practice don't really work like that. They can no, they can they technically don't. go on. They, no, they can go on forever, um, which is. It's it's somewhat prohibitive when you're thinking of planning a, a quick game in a, in a you know an evening for a club, but, but it. If you if you approach these games with a real sense of the narrative and and embracing the story, and aware that the pace of those games might might change at any point, you know you can play for an hour and nothing really happens. There's a bit of a deadlock, and then all of a sudden it bursts into life. Um, so yeah, it, 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 there's a shift there from from bolt action. I think uh, I, I really I'm enjoying Chain of Command as a different you know a different change of uh, of pace. They both both of those games emphasise. Uh, the officers, you know, your leadership, mm-hmm. probably a little bit more than than bolt action because you have to activate your leaders to get the troops beneath them to do anything. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's all about command and control, and indeed the chain of command in that in that game is is the vital thing. And uh, yeah, they, they they are very fun games, and it's it's I'm sure you can appreciate this as well, Brad. It's it's really nice when opportunity arises to use a collection of models that you've had for one game, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's the limit of where you see them being used. And then you think, actually, I can use them all for this game. And it, it's like a, you know, a rejuvenated force. All the old models, the dusty ones at the back of the cupboard that you didn't use for bolt action, you get out and use for a different game. You know, you familiar with that? Have you done that with different games? I have. Uh, I did that with Conflict 47. Now, it could be argued that yeah. Conflict 47 is bolt action. They are both the same family and they're very similar rules. But I, I went through that experience big time with uh, Conflict 47, especially after the Conflict 47, the new updated rules came out in the Resurgence yes. book. Oh, yeah. my God. I went back through all my armies and went, oh, yeah. Yeah, give me some more of that. Oh, yeah. Oh, sweet. That unit's this. This unit's that. I can add to this. And it, it just opened up all of the armies that I'd already painted and a bunch of them that I kind of burnt out on and said, nah, I'll do mm. that later. All of a sudden, I was playing Americans again going, when did this happen? Like I never played yeah. Americans and they're one of my favorite, um, conflict 47 armies, but yeah, I agree. Absolutely, yeah. Um, what I really like about them, cause I, I was run through a demo game of chain of command a while back and I liked yeah. how it, it was a little different in that, as, as you say, it's very narrative based. When I played it, uh, there was now correct me if I'm wrong. My memory's a little wonky on it. It was a while ago, but you don't really build your army list per se, um, like things happen and you can bring on different types of units depending on what's happening in the game. Um, tanks in particular. Sort of. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. You don't, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. You don't go through a list choosing 
you know, certainly before the game, you don't go through a list choosing and, and adding, you know, I'm having this squad and that squad on Volschenjäger and SS and so on. There are prescribed um, force lists, platoon lists for different periods of the war. Many of those are official, in inverted commas. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been... Uh, either produced in the army books or they do a big series of um, they call them pint-sized campaigns they cost uh, you know less than three pounds and it's got a bunch of scenarios and a couple of lists in which is um, cool yeah. and they yeah it is really cool and his theory on that this is rich clark i'm talking about who's the main guy behind uh, two fat lardies and uh, he he prices those pint-sized campaigns as at the same price as a pint of beer at his local pub uh, and they're only available as PDFs, but they're, they're really good. They're, you know, they're sort of 40 odd pages and they've got six scenarios and uh, that are all linked with historical maps and historical setups. But the forces are prescribed. Uh, for instance, one I've been looking at recently is called the um, Kampfgruppe von Luck, which is about the 21st mm-hmm. Panzer Division in Normandy fighting uh, the British uh, Airborne. Uh, glider troops and uh, and paratroops in Normandy early on and you at the start of the book you've got your somewhat diminished uh, glider platoon there and it tells you exactly what you start each game with Uh, and that's what you've got to get you through and so yes you're not really listing at that point but what you do have Brad is a a, um, I can't remember exactly what it's called it's like a a reserve list you've got a list um, and all your category one support choices or your category two ones which is slightly better your category three ones all the way up to sort of category six or seven which might be something really good like for the germans category six or seven might be a panzer four or something like that or you know even a tiger up at really really high levels and then so you've got your basic platoon and before the game starts um you roll you roll dice and that tells you i can't remember the exact system but it tells you how many support points you've got for this particular scenario. Okay, that makes Which could sense. be slightly frustrating. Yeah, because you might have brought your tiger with you to the game and then you roll and you've only got three support points so you can't right. afford to use it. So in that sense, it's a little bit... I mean, if you want to just say, I'm going to use the tiger, you, my opponent's going to use equivalent support points, you can obviously do that. But the, the system is set up so that it balances. For instance, if you're playing an elite force like the Fallschirmjäger against uh, a regular force... On the Allied side, uh, you, the the regular force it will be balanced by them getting more support points. You know, mm-hmm. we played a game at the at the club the other night with Falschmjäger versus New Zealanders on Crete, and um, the support choices that that our um, the guy who set the game up, James, the support po- uh, choices that he gave to the regulars were three light tanks, mm-hmm. which against the Falschmjäger. Uh, they only had they had a captured Bofors gun and maybe an extra officer something like that so the forces look very imbalanced but it, it kind of works because of the rules for how elites and, and regulars work um, so yeah it, it is it is certainly more constrained and limited than bolt action in terms of what what things you can you can use but as with all games you can break the rules if you want you know you, yeah. you don't have to uh, it's not a tournament game so i don't think they feel like they have to um to cater for people who want to do weird and wacky lists if you want you know if you want to do that you're going to do it anyway aren't you but um yeah well that's it is I mean, interesting that's one of the things that i mean uh, there's there has been with some bolt action players um quite a push against uh chain of command Simply because um, I think it does have a lot of what you're talking about and that you can't really play it as a tournament game. Um, it's more of a narrative-based um, I think, gaming I experience. think that's probably true, yeah. yeah. I think it's probably true. Dave, Dave Hunter is actually running 
for sharp practice, which is the black powder mm-hmm. um, two fat lardies games, which shares many systems with chain of command. It doesn't, there are fundamental differences, but it shares the system of shark and of activations to some degree. Um, but he's running uh, weekend events of sharp practice. So they are events, not tournaments. Not tournaments, yeah. Uh, but, he's, but he's sort of marshalling the different games that are going on and linking them together. And so to say that it's not a tournament game is probably true because it's not watertight enough and it's not, you're not encouraged to play in a sort of diehard way against set parameters to win mm-hmm. or, or what? I mean, there are victory conditions, obviously. Otherwise, it's, you it's know, not a game. Yeah, <laughs> play. exactly, exactly. But what Dave's doing with it, with sharp practice is really, really inspiring and, and, and great fun. I've only done one of them, but he's been running them all over the country. Um, but I think you could do that with Chain of Command. But you, the players would have to embrace the sense of theme, I think. Otherwise, it would become a bit of a mess. You know, it yeah. hinges on the players really going with the theme and going with the historical ideas that are presented in the scenarios. There are fundamental differences with, with bolt action because the heaviest um, type of artillery that is on the table in Chain of Command is a light mortar. Oh, wow. Nothing, nothing else is on the board. Um, you know, if, you're, if you take a medium mortar as a support choice, then it's a battery of medium mortars that are off the table and you roll for them to, I think even some of the barrages, they happen before the game. So they don't actually fall on your opponent and do dice worth of damage. They delay your opponent during the initial opening turns of the game, makes it harder for them to get on the board because their position has been hammered by artillery. Um, Some of the large anti-tank guns are off the board as well. I think like if you take an 88, it's not sitting there waiting for a tank to come down the road necessarily. It might be on a hill overlooking the board and might fire on them. Um, Yeah, I was watching. um, I was watching a documentary, a couple documentaries about Market Garden, and they were talking about how tanks were driving along, you know, the road, um, and how during different parts of their journey to, you know, um, thirty Army Corps trying to get to the paratroopers, they were riding along these, you know, elevated roads with ditches on either side, and the Germans were just lining up, you know, artillery pieces and shooting at them. Um, And with an eighty-eight, I mean, it it wouldn't. If you even if you turn the board sideways on a six by four and had it them at different ends, that still wouldn't be the right scale. Um, you would be plinking yes. them. You wouldn't. I yeah, mean, yeah, they yeah. would say like they didn't even see the eighty eights. They just their tanks were just yeah, blowing yeah. up. Absolutely. I think there are situations, or there were historical situations where eighty eights would be in ambush. They'd be hidden in barns and farmhouses mm-hmm. in Normandy. You know, you you if you were in you know. Uh, less than cautious in a British tank driving down a, a, a farm road in, in the Bacage, you could very easily stumble across an 88. So you may have those kinds of engagements, but I think it's a fundamental difference in the game. I don't think sharp practice, sorry, chain of command, which is the, the two fat lardies game. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a slavishly historical simulation game, but it's, it, it's meant to capture the feel of what, um, what, the people who've written it believe World War II engagements to be generally like. I don't want to criticize bolt action. I I love it. But Mm. bolt action is fundamentally about getting cool 28 mil toys on the table and, and getting them firing at each other and moving around and, um, and having a fun game yeah. uh, you can do very there's nothing stopping you doing very hi- historical things with with bolt action either i don't think if you want to play bolt action in mm-hmm. a really historical way then you yeah you leave the howitzers and the the 88s off the table and you play something set up to 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 model something more historical um 
but I, yeah, there's a there's a there's a, there's a philosophy that's that's different between the two games. I think I would agree. I think also um, uh, the the meta quote unquote. I know I've spent the last couple of episodes talking about the you know how the comp and how you build your list and how you play yeah, for yeah. fun and historical accuracy and all this business. Um, but it really does resonate for me that. Um, I think one of the reasons why I never picked up Chain of Command is I get that experience with bolt action because I don't sure. play in events where people are necessarily min-maxing or taking the best thing yeah. um, and throwing out historical accuracy. It's not like, yes. you know, they're taking things from, you know, uh, an early war list and then taking super late war stuff and combining them only to to make the the best you know, bolt action sure. army to play. Um, people yeah. I tend to play against in particular um, tend to be super, you know, run historically minded lists that are reasonably accurate. And sure, that means that sometimes we play games like I played my 1937 Chinese against um, my friend Lee Avery's British, you know, paratroopers from, you know, 1944. Sure. And while that yeah. wasn't historical, I mean, it did end up with a relatively balanced game. But, uh, and I also like that idea of balancing points, having equal size lists, and that sort of thing yeah. that bolt action does afford. But I. Yeah. Well, you, you, yeah. um, you, you, I mean, you presumably with your friend Lee, you, you had a chat beforehand, right? What kind, you know, what kind of thing are we bringing? We know it's not going to be mm -hmm. historical, but I'm going to, you know, you would, if you're doing that, if you're setting up that kind of game down at the club, you, if you were going to bring some horrible tank, you would probably warn your friend beforehand, mm -hmm. wouldn't you bring some anti tank oh, yeah. or, or what, or whatever, what kind of game are we doing? And, and it's for exactly the reason you've just said, even if it's not a necessarily historical game, you want it to be balanced. And you want those last couple of, turns you know of the game to be really tense um exactly. which you can get with bolt action yeah i usually yeah. actually I ask my opponent these days which army do you want me to bring i i, I have sure like what eight now painted bolt action armies mm. and it is actually yeah. a fairly common when i'm playing friendly it's like okay well do you want to play against anything in particular because i got these armies what do you feel like yeah um and people, what's the most popular uh well people generally say you know bring whatever um so i i, I tend to I don't know. I've been mixing it up recently and playing a little bit everything. Um, I think I'm about to go on a run. Um, I'm playing in an event this weekend. Um, the Bacon Burgers, um, Tristan, his he's running a tournament um, in Melbourne on next weekend, and I'm going to be playing my Auto Sahariana for the first time. So nice. I'm very excited, although I'm more than a little nervous because people have started to post lists because the, <laughs> the theme of this event was um, Tristan wanted to mix it up and rightly so, you know, make it not boring. Um, he said, hey, I encourage everyone. I'm going to make it 1300 points, but we're going to play regular platoons. Um, we're going to try and stay away from armored platoons unless, you know, special considerations given. Um and we encourage you to bring a big tank. Um, bring something silly. Mm. Bring something fun. And so there's there's tigers. There's king tigers. Um, there's some IS. I think there's an SU-152. And there's uh, mm -hmm. a KV-2. And you know people taking lists around these big tanks. Um, I, however, went the exact opposite way because I really want to put this army on the table. Um, and I'm yeah. not sure when else I'm going to do it. So uh, my, I have a pile of vehicles, but none of them are heavier than a soft skin. So sure. we'll see they how They look that really goes. great, Brad. I think it's one of the, I've been looking at the posts, uh, the pictures you posted. 
one of the best uh, forces I think I've seen you do in a while. Actually, I really, really like the uh, the painting you've done on those. Oh, well, I'm I'm really I'm really excited that I got it back, and I have to thank Terence, um, the gentleman who I sold it to years ago, because I built it, started painting it, um, and I I had a little bit of a I have to leave bolt action for a while moment, and I did, um, and I came back and. Warlord was having the sale where oh, you could get a bunch of cheap vehicles. And I went, oh, great. I'm going to buy my Auto Sahariana back. I cannot wait um, because I had the, the infantry already painted. Um, I'm sorry. I had the infantry already bought in a case. And I, can, I can paint the infantry because it's only a few. And I can paint the vehicles. And I love painting vehicles. And then Warlord wasn't selling that vehicle. And I went, oh, that's a ah. bummer. Um, and I posted that online. And then Warlord said, hey, we'll sell you that vehicle at the same rate, which is great. Ten minutes after Terrence contacted me to, you know, say, "Hey, by the way, I still have that army," and I was like, "Oh, hey, ho, huh?" Because I'd been harassing him on and off for years and saying, "Hey, is that still on sale? Hey, you ever considered selling sure. that?" Uh, and he actually sold it back you to me. You are a sorry. Go ahead. You're a bit of a we- you're a bit of a wheeler dealer of uh, of armies, aren't you? Because although yeah. I've never met met you in person, Brad, I've actually used one of your armies in an event. Oddly, you haven't have. I? Uh, which, and is, which is an my unusual thing to consider. Exactly, yes, because you sold them to Dave over here, didn't you? He lent them me for an event, and then you you, check, you had a change of heart with them, uh-huh. didn't you? Well, those were the two I bought <laughs> back. So I sure, bought two, sure. two armies back over the years, and those are the two. Um, yeah. And so what's interesting is, though, that none of the vehicles that I sent Terrence, he'd been using the infantry um, because it was that all the infantry were painted by my friend Enzo. Um, and I'd been working on the vehicles. Well, he hadn't, they, they weren't finished and he hadn't done anything with them because he had his own fully painted Italian, uh, motor pool. And so, yeah, sure enough, uh, I got it back and I opened the box and it was still in the wrapping that I'd put it in. Um, oh, really? and yeah, so I unpacked the vehicles, put them out on the table and went, okay, where was I with this? Um, figured out which <laughs> colors took- it was. Yep. I bet you took them out and smelled them, didn't you? <laughs> no. <laughs> like the perfume of a lover uh, on a on a yeah, pillowcase. <laughs> exactly. I was like, oh, I missed you. No, uh, I was I was very excited when I got it back. I put out the army and looked at everything again and went, oh yeah, this this was what I wanted back then. Um, I'm I'm just really happy that I got it back and it's finally done. Um, it's not They're done really yet. Interesting it's very though, close. Um, Sure, they're very interesting vehicles, aren't they? They've got the super chunky tires. Yeah, they look like moon buggies. I've said it before. Yeah, yeah. they're they're sensational. So it's a Sahariana list, uh, auto Sahariana list, and I have I'm basically running five Saharianas, um, which are the armored car, and in bolt action terms, it's thirty points for an open topped veteran armor. Well, thirty point open top vehicle, not open top. Mm. Sorry, soft skin um, at veteran. But it has no guns, and then you you pay for the weapons. Um, and so on all my vehicles, I've put the forward mounted machine gun because they to a T almost always had that. Um, and then I've mixed up the weapons you can put on the the weapon mount the 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 turret or the I don't know what you'd call it the weapon mount, but it's three sixty. Yep. Um, it's a pintle, but it's an open top vehicle. So whatever sure. you want to call it. Yeah. Um, uh, pe- pedestal mount they sometimes call them yeah so exactly 
And so most of what my force has is mostly, of, I mean, I really try to get historical with it. So it's mostly light autocannons and a light uh, um, AT gun. So when facing a lot of heavy tanks, I'm going to be struggling. <laughs> but, it's uh, one of those rock, rock, paper, scissors forces, isn't it, I think? Yeah, but I think I, I'm not playing to the meta. But, um, you know, no. that is okay because I am not going to win. I'm going to put this army on a tabletop and have fun so excellent yeah do you want a bit of um do you want want a bit of gossip yes bit of bolt action gossip please Uh, i know um did you see that there are a couple of uh, bolt action books uh put up on amazon for pre-order i heard there's a desert book coming yes there is yeah well the guy who has written the desert book uh is is a friend of mine and i shan't give away too many details because i don't know exactly what what we're allowed to say but it's in common knowledge that that desert book has been written i cannot wait and uh, i I shall just leave it at um your auto sahariana you know don't put them too close you know don't put them too far back in the cupboard is what i'm saying keep them near the front of the cupboard ready ready for when that book comes out you made my day i got a big old grin on my face Oh, yeah. yes. I'm, oh, cannot wait. So um, I, just this weekend, um, talking about hobby progress, I took, I took out an old British utility um, car, I think is what they were originally called. They were nicknamed Tillies. Um, yeah. And I had one from Warlord from way back when, from when I, from my Sikh army that I actually just never painted um, because I, I just, for some reason, never did. Uh, and I, I needed a tow for a, for a Elephantino for this list. And I went, oh, I'll, I'll play around with it. And so I cut off the top and, you know, converted it up, added some jerry cans and some stowage. And I'm pretty happy with um, how it ended up. But it just, you know, it doesn't look anything really like it did before. It really, it's, a, it's amazing how topping the top off a car really does change yeah. its profile. Uh, but Absolutely. yeah, I've been painting that this weekend that's and some a, weapons, and it's cool. Good. It's yeah. fun. I think the the desert is uh, is probably one of the 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 theaters in which capturing equipment is is the most uh, yes. appropriate. Actually, it was all about piracy. You know, it was like naval warfare. The tank battles going yes. on in the desert, and the Italians and the Germans and the British—they're all capturing uniforms and vehicles mm-hmm. off each other all the time, weren't they? There's so many pictures of captured stuff. So I can't see why the, Itap- uh, the Italians wouldn't have captured a, uh, a Tilly car. Well, we said they were, it was for towing an Elephantino. Is that one of the anti-tank guns with these sort of odd curved stand? It is. It is. It is very weird looking. Um, it is mm-hmm. a light. AT gun in bolt action terms, so it's not like I'm bringing one of the monsters, but it is sure. it it is weird and sort of bent. And the um, the anti tank rifle, the Slothern, uh, I don't know how to pronounce these things, um, even though I read them all the time, um, is yeah. also on a wheeled carriage. And so it's it's everything I've been putting together, bar the machine guns, got wheels on it. Um, and yeah, just putting it all together. So I have a ton of Italian vehicles, clearly. Um, I have a couple of the AS-37s, which look like, you know, giant dune buggies. And then mm. the AS-42s, uh, um, or 43s, I'm blanking right now, which is the Sahariana, which is the giant moon buggy with the giant tire in the front. Um, yeah, yeah. With, lined with jerry cans. Can I just say that highlighting jerry cans is now my least favorite thing to do in bolt action? <laughs> um, I've literally painted... Each one has something like 
what, tw- uh, 25, 24 jerry cans, and I've got three of them. Not to mention all and the extra ones. And they have so ones. many little segments. Yeah. The little segments on the side profile to highlight those edges. Yes, I can imagine that. And for a guy who yeah. edge highlights everything, I hate life. Yeah, um, you, you, you go for that technique, don't you? I can see that being, um, yeah, but, challenging. Yeah, but uh, I've added a few Italian trucks and a few Italian other vehicles, but then I wanted to really mix it up, and I was doing a lot of mm. reading of, as you were saying, the looted vehicles in the desert. So mm. I also have an Opal Blitz and a... Um, I'm forgetting the name of the, oh, a Bedford truck, um, the British Bedford mm-hmm. in there as well. And so when it all comes together and you put it all down, it all looks nice, um, like it matches. But yeah, different vehicles from different places. And yeah, uh, it's yeah. fun. I can't wait to see that. It looked really good. Do you say that it was the infantry were painted by Enzo? Is he the French guy? He was on one of the podcasts a while ago. Yes, that is him. Uh, uh, that uh, may have been Julian because um, there was two uh, okay. two lovely French guys who lived in Melbourne for a while, um, and then they sadly had to you know move on, and so they went back to France. And uh, I haven't actually spoken to Enzo in a while, but I speak to Julian quite regularly. Um, so he is probably the one who would have been on. But Enzo um, painted, yeah, the the infantry for the Italian. I seem sport. to remember seeing pictures of them, and they looked stunning. They were really great mm. infantry models. Yeah, they're really good. Um, Julian is famous, the guy who I spent, what, a year and a half painting a German army. I mean, really went out of my way to make it the best thing I've ever painted. Put it down on a table and came second best painted, apparently, to Julian, who (laughs) painted literally his in four days prior to the event. And I was like, sickening, isn't it? Uh, and his wasn't finished and i was like oh i hate you uh but yeah no he's he's a good friend we we joke a lot about star wars but um so i'm really excited about putting that on the table excellent yeah Yeah. now that sounds great yeah okay well that's that's enough of me um what have you been painting these days what have i been painting i've i think probably yeah i bet you can relate to this i've i've always got about half a dozen projects on the go at once (laughs) what do you mean they sort of they (laughs) Yeah, they sort of rotate, you know, some rise to the surface and you do a bit more of those and you, you sort of switch over and do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones, the, the the stuff that I've been doing fairly recently, I've been doing some uh, some vehicles for the 21st Panzer Division in Normandy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with these. I talked about them a little bit on, a, we did an episode on uh, the battle for Caen. Yes, I uh, love that episode. It was a good one, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and you're doing it. And one of the interesting units there, you've got well, you've got several very interesting German units oh, there. Yeah. Uh, you've got yeah, you've got the Panzerlehr, which is the sort of teaching, uh, you know, the training uh, division there with all the, the experienced instructors uh, in brand new pan, Panther tanks. You've got the, the 12th SS, the Hitler Youth, mm-hmm. who are a very interesting unit. But you also got most interesting to me um, was the 21st Panzer, who. Um, they, uh, the, the German high command got hold of, of, uh, this, uh, this guy called Albert Becker. And I think he was, uh, he was getting a reputation mm-hmm. as an engineer on the Eastern front. And he had been recycling and converting, uh, armored vehicles into mm-hmm. fighting vehicles, captured equipment, things like that. And they said, he's, he's really good at this. Um, we've got lots and lots of captured French stuff. That's pretty useless to us at the moment. But we're going to need it quite soon because, you know, it's summer 1944. We think the Allies are on the way. So they sent him to 
Normandy, uh, not necessarily Normandy, sent him to France and they set him up with a big warehouse and all these old um, captured, uh, not necessarily old, but lots of captured French half half tracks and chassis of different vehicles. And he converted them all into armoured fighting vehicles, um, mounting the, you know, the excellent German you know, pack 40 mm-hmm. um, guns on them and, and some of them they put the uh, 10 and a half centimeter howitzers on as well and um, there are one or two companies actually although it's a fairly niche range to do when I looked into it Warlord make about half the vehicles you need and Mad yeah. Bob makes the other half I was going to say uh, Mad Bob and Warlord have bo- both have those models they do yeah, yeah. and I th- I think, I, I assume, I can't remember, I know Bob did a, a Kickstarter a couple of years ago and I, I, I wasn't particularly aware of the 21st Panzer back then, so I wasn't involved, but I think he, he sort of filled out the gaps of the stuff that Warlord wasn't doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so between those two ranges, uh, I've, got, I've got a nice little, little armoured force together there and a load of late war Panzer Grenadier type infantry to go with them. There's some really interesting looking stuff. There's these, these Sommua... French MCG half tracks that have yes. got a, a big pack 40 mounted towards the rear. So they look like one of those Marder threes, you know, where they've got the gun right at the rear and the, the barrel is sort of hanging over most of the, the chassis. They look really, really cool, really kind of sinister. It does. Um, it looks and very cool. Yeah, I've um, I've been doing those, and I've, I've, there's a captured uh, Hotch Kiss H39, um, which is like a, a, a tracked mm-hmm. chassis, and then some half tracks, these Unic P107 things, mm-hmm. which are very odd. They're a little bit like Hanamags in in the, the sort of strange angles. You know, they've got the the um, the armor to the sides on the lower half of the chassis that sort of sh- um, it, it it leans upwards. You know, to I do, I, which yeah. I assume is. But, okay, I have a question about that. And maybe in explaining this, you can help me to understand. So were those originally French vehicles? And if so, were the French using them in 1939-1940? Because I, I know that they are Becker's creations, and I know they were used in um, around Normandy, but you look at them and you go, that doesn't that looks distinctly German. I mean, some of those vehicles, like the, um, what is it, the Char, one of the Chars that was turned into a flame tank, that still clearly looks French. Um, yes. And some of those things very clearly are just French. With, I mean, they took um, that little tiny French um, ammo carrier, little tractor, mm. and they mounted um, a Nebelwerfer on the back. And I've converted one of those. Um, sure. And that sort of thing. But yeah, what what they were what, they were French. Yeah. And did... Mad Bob would be the um, would be the excellent okay. guest to talk about this, but I'll give it a go. Yeah, they were they were made by Citroen, um, okay. and I, I can't remember if I've talked about this on another podcast. But there's a there's a, a 1920s vehicle called the Citroen Cagras, of which Bob makes several mm. different varieties, and I think they were made under a patent from that particular type of half track. Oh, okay. And they were they were produced right up in, into the 30s. They, they are I know what you're saying that they look. They kind of look older in one sense, right? Um, sort of ant- antiquated, and they, they they do look very very German. But they, from what I gather, they weren't armoured before Becker got hold of them. So all of the armoured okay. shapes that you see, the curving uh, armour on the rear and mm-hmm. the sort of upward slanting um, panels on the sides, um, those those are all German additions. And yeah, you're right. They they use them for a variety of things. They use them as anti-tank platforms. They use them to, to mount uh, Werfer um, batteries, you know, all the, mm-hmm. the tubes firing. Um, I used one of those in, in Chain of Command the other night. As I said, they don't use 
onboard artillery that's right. bigger than a, a light a light uh, mortar. Mm-hmm. But one of your support choices that was worth four four points off the list was a pregame warfare barrage. So the enemy gets a, a barrage from one of those ahead of the ahead of the fighting, which was uh, was pretty interesting. But yeah, the, the the French vehicles are very very characterful, and they you know, and I'm, I'm painting them up in your normal German style, your Dunkelgelb, your three color cool. um, late war camo, and adding adding bits of mud and tufts and so on. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really really pleased with them. And it's uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a nice characterful force, and it's. It's one of those ones where I think I would hope when I take take it out and start using it at uh, events or it shows people will say, "Oh, what's that? What are they?" You know, exactly. that, that kind of thing. It's nice. It's nice to start a little conversation, isn't it? Um, so yeah, I've been doing doing those for my late war Germans. Uh, I've been doing doing a fair bit of uh, of uh, for World War Two stuff actually. I did. I painted a uh, not strictly a tank, a tank destroyer. Uh, in the last month or so from mm-hmm. uh, from Warlord. I think the last time I was on your podcast, I talked about the Nashorn. You did. Um, and I've done a vehicle this time, which is, it has some similarities, actually. Uh, and that's the Elephant. Yes. I um, was going to say, I saw this, yes. You, yeah, you did I've, post pictures of this, right? Because I'm not... I I'm did, not, yeah, yeah, I did, okay. yeah. It was, it, was, it was over a month ago. Yeah, yeah. it was over a month ago. Um but I've got it. I've, I've put it on a shelf because I'm really quite pleased with it. But it's similar to the Nash one in that it was used on the Eastern Front and the Italian Front, um, and it, it, it's quite an interesting vehicle. And like the Nash one, it's got a big gun on it. It's got the the lot, the very long, you know, the mm-hmm. the high KWK. I can't remember the uh, the specific designation of it, but the really powerful Pack 40. Oh, no, it's an 88. It's the long 88 mil gun on it. I think it's an 88. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It is. You're right, but it's it's the one that was in the Tiger Two rather yes. than the the version that was in the Tiger One. Um, but unlike the Nash Horn, it's on a flipping big, heavy, mm-hmm. enclosed tank destroyer. I think the the story behind the Elephant is that uh, when you know when they were they were uh, they had got the order in from from Hitler to build the Tiger, his heavy tank, and you'd got two rival companies making prototypes. You'd mm-hmm. got um, Henschel and Porsche. And um, they both made their designs. They're very similar, and they, uh, they 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 presented them for trials and, and demonstrations. And he went with Henschel, and Porsche had already built the the chassis for about eighty, maybe ninety of the the Tigers, and then they they were they were turned down. So they thought, well, well, what are we going to do with these eighty, ninety, big heavy chassis? And they decided to to use them to to mount a big gun, but to 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 have it in a in a tank destroyer type role. Uh, and we all know what the elephant uh, looks like. It, it began mm-hmm. as the Ferdinand, actually, uh, as uh, the uh, as in Ferdinand Porsche. Right, uh, that was his first name. Uh, and the Ferdinand oh, didn't it? do very I didn't well. Realize that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think I've got that the right way around. But yes, yeah, mm. they they used the Ferdinand on the on the eastern front. And although they got a really great gun on a you know very very long range on it, they I think they recorded high numbers of kills during the Battle of Kursk, much like the Nashorn. They were actually very vulnerable despite the heavy armor. They were very vulnerable to swarms of Soviets with Molotovs crawling all over them and setting fire to the uh, to the rear end and, and so on. They haven't got a machine gun on, so they re, they repurposed them as a uh, 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 slightly more well defended vehicle, which they called the Elephant. I think Hitler preferred the name Elephant. Uh, it sounded more uh, intimidating, and they mm-hmm. used those in Italy. They were certainly at Anzio as well. And I actually got to see one of these in 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 the flesh, so to speak, and touch it down at the uh, Bovington Tank Museum. I went last How summer. How big is it? 
it's huge. It's, it's absolutely huge. It's there are only I believe I watched a documentary about this. There are only two elephants in existence or two sort of functioning ones, mm-hmm. you know, that are, that are in, intact. One of them is in the uh, that big American tank museum mm-hmm. fort something. Uh, I can't remember where it is, but they they loaned it to the Bobbington Tank Museum down uh, down in Dorset in England. Mm-hmm. So when I went last summer, I was lucky enough to see it there. Uh, and yeah, it's massive. It's huge. Um, and it, you know, it's next to it's next to a king tiger. It's parked up. So to look huge next to a king tiger, you've got to be pretty big, haven't you? Yeah. But yeah, I did. I, yeah, I painted up one of those uh, muddy Dunkel Gel with bits of green on, um, so it could be used for the Eastern Front or for um, Italy. But I've not actually put it on the table yet. I can't remember off the top of my head what that's like in bolt action. Um, Five hundred points. It's really slow. expensive. Yeah, it's. Yeah, so it's it's not uh, the optimum choice um, if you are gonna if you're looking for that sort of thing. But um, I mean, I am a guy with an IS three, so yeah, I get it. <laughs> it's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's the rule Absolutely. of cool. Put it on a tabletop, have some fun. It's amazing yeah, when yeah. Um, you start using the tanks that people tell you aren't any good and you should never take. Um, those are usually some of the funnest games I have because um, you have to think constructively and creatively about how to use them. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was using. And any success is a yeah. is a bonus, isn't it? Yeah, I uh, I played a tank in a tank war event with uh, a panther, a tiger, and a sturm tiger, and um, it was just like in yeah. one list. Yeah, that was my list. Um, wow! And it was just I'm not here to win. Uh, well, I was the Gumby, and I was only playing in one yeah. game. But um, I was like, yep, yeah, gonna have some fun. Um, and it was it, apparently it was intimidating to face. Um, but you know, I didn't have any infantry to grab objectives, and I think it wasn't an infantry or it wasn't objective grabbing game. So uh, yeah, it wasn't like I was uh, bucking the meta on that one, but uh, it was mm. a lot of fun just to put on the table yeah. and to push around and to make a mess of my opponent. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's the kind of tank that's so—it's uh, not a tank, you know, tank destroyer, the type yeah. of armored vehicle that's so. It's so big and preposterous that it, it, it almost um, it almost deserves to have a scenario built around it. it really this might does. be something, yeah, so it might be something for bolt action. It might be something for chain of command. But the thing with the elephant is much like a lot of the um, heavy German vehicles. They weren't actually blown up because the Allies couldn't penetrate them, but they were abandoned. Yeah. Either the Allies used HE to blow the tracks off, or they ran out of fuel, or they mm-hmm. ran out of ammo, or or they just they just broke down. Um, so I kind of imagined a lengthways game, and you put the elephant towards one end, mm-hmm. and um, you then have a load of Allied tanks. You know, Sherman's probably in Italy, or T-34s if you're using it for for the Soviets uh, in Russia. You and they they are driving to overrun the line that's being held by this elephant. The elephant is totally immobilized and you have some conditions set up where the elephant can keep firing. You know, they've got ammo. Mm-hmm. They can try and take out the T-34s, but you've got to get the crew off the board before <laughs> the end of the game. <laughs> nice. I you love know? it. Yeah, so that'd you, be great. You can, you can stick around as long as you like to keep blowing up the Shermans, but the longer you wait, the harder it is to get the crew off. And because that was, that was a big problem for the Germans, wasn't it? You can, to some degree, you can replace tanks, but you can't replace experienced crews. Right. Um, I think it's, there's a good argument to say, actually, by the end of the war, the Germans couldn't replace tanks either. No, but um, certainly, <laughs> yeah. no, um, pr- certainly preserving the crews was, a, was a, a vital thing as well. So, yeah, something like that might work. But you need crew models, wouldn't you? you I would. don't know. I think Black Tree Design make German 
tank crew models. I want to say that Warlord might have a couple. Maybe those are. I think they. Sylvia. I can't remember. I have to look. They do. They yeah. certainly do one that's one of the ones that comes. You know, like an exclusive that comes with a book. Yes, and I have that one. Um, there's, you have that one. But there's, there's. I think there's something else too. Um, I, I know there's. Um, I know there's American models that you can use, especially if you get the. Um, uh, Kelly's Heroes. Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, and artisan, artisan design do tank crew for the oh, um, the Americans as well. Um, and there um, was as well. somebody got me a model from from an event somewhere, and it's the War Daddy model. It's the it's a model yeah. from Brad Pitt from Fury, uh, and yep. I love that model. And there's also I have in he's in a little baggie next to my it's in my short list of models to paint um, because I really just want to paint that model. Uh, it's just cool. Yeah, yeah. But I was actually hipster hairdo. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, I was talking about you were talking about a special mission, um, or a, yeah, playing that out as a fun game. I was actually mm -hmm. having a, a very similar discussion um, when I got the IS three painted up. I was talking it over with a friend, and we were talking about you know how they were being rushed um, to face the Japanese. Um, after German Germany had capitulated, and that was theoretically yes. where the IS three saw or would have seen combat had you know the war not ended when it did, uh, and mm. that would and that's when we were kind of joking around with well, something like seventy to eighty percent of the Japanese military was held up in Manchuria during World War two, so there was a significant military presence there. They weren't really updated though. Um, the Japanese all, all of the like really cutting edge tanks um, were pulled back to the home islands um, to prevent um, the allied invasion. And so what you would end up facing against the IS-3 would probably be a pile of Hagos, maybe some Chihas, uh, maybe some Type 89s, even though they were woefully out of date at that point, um, and yeah, yeah. a few tankettes. And you go, there's nothing in that list of tanks <laughs> I just listed besides a light uh, you know, a low yield light AT gun and light howitzers that isn't a machine gun. So yeah. uh, against an IS-3, which has the highest armor value in the game, I don't know if that's actually going to be any fun to play. Maybe it will. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, yeah, I, if yeah. you were, I don't know. I don't know how, yeah, I don't know how reliable they, they were. I, know, I don't know much about the IS-3 at all, but often when you have those first those first trials or first engagements of these these big super tanks, you know, something normally goes wrong and they break down mm -hmm. or, you know, maybe you could work something like that into it. I'm not I'm not sure. The rules for bolt action have them. It's, that's the other thing. I think it's point value is prohibitive enough. 600 points really? regular. Um, wow. Yeah, it's brutal. But as I said, yeah. highest tank, uh, what is it, armor 12 on the front? Um, it's it's higher, it's literally the highest value in the game. And um, Sure, yeah. I've never put it on the table. I really should. I loved painting it. It's great. Warlord's model is sensational. I just need to find a way of using it. So anyway. Sure. Moving on. Sorry, you were saying, um, so you've also been painting some terrain. Yeah, well, I'm, all, I'm always doing bits of terrain for different mm. things. Yeah, my... Mm, the the event that I've run, the bolt action event, mm -hmm. is called End of the Beginning, and uh, it started off as just a desert event. I think it was just desert the first time I did it, but it we was, we yeah. it's a it's a yeah it's a Mediterranean event, 
now. So I've, I've got a big stockpile of desert terrain, nice. Italian terrain, um, and some that's more specifically suited to Crete. So I've been, yeah, I've been adding to that generally, and I've been using quite a lot of it at the minute because we ran a we ran a big uh, bolt action participation game at a local war games show in in Nottingham last weekend so i used a lot of my vineyards and uh, well not vineyards i i brought the olive groves to the to the party someone mm -hmm. else did the vineyards but we we covered the table um with uh, with terrain suited for crete and it, it looked really great it was a kind of a fortuitous alignment of interests actually i said earlier on in the show i'd started going to a new uh, a new gaming club mm -hmm. and there's a chap there who runs the club called james and he just returned from crete and uh, was getting into uh, the idea of doing 28 mil uh, wargaming on Crete. And I've got, you know, a load of stuff already stockpiled. So we kind of pooled our interests there Perfect. and, uh, and put, every, put everything together. And it was a 15-foot-long table. Oh. Um, yeah, it was, it was gigantic. And then, you know, about, probably about five feet wide. And the way we set it up was with, uh, with three mini-games. We did the Battle of the Tavronitis River which is a dry riverbed on the edge of the uh, the key location in the capture of Crete, which is the Malame airfield. I needed to get gliders and planes down on Malame, and uh, a load of the glider troops had landed in the, the riverbed in their gliders and uh, were trying to force their way out onto the airfield. So we had New Zealanders charging them down and, nice. uh, and uh, German uh, airborne troops uh, mostly glider troops trying to fight their way through the, the village of Tavronitis and it, it did it looked it came together you know if I do say so myself it came together as a gaming board very very well um, when you go when you go to shows you see some you know world-class stunning right. um, yeah. dis display games you know typically the board is made out of foam and sculpted and there are mm -hmm. different tiers you know they have a big uh, big sort of square sections that they put together and that board you know if it's got a castle on it or a bridge or a town it is purpose-built for that one game yeah. and the way the way we approached this, the way James mostly approached it was to be more more versatile than that and to be able to actually fit things in a civilian car rather than in a you know yeah. a, a, an articulated a panel lorry veil. yeah exactly yeah so he 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 had crafted um some large hills that go under a like a felt gaming mat nice because i think which sounds a little bit basic but i'll explain one, one of the things that i think makes a huge difference to gaming tables is levels tiers of mm. uh you know, vertical height on a board because I, I, yeah, it's, it's, it seems difficult to do sometimes. And, um, I think I've been to so many events and not what is the norm is a flat table with two or three lumps sticking out as hills. And right. obviously that, you know, we have the necessities of transport and storage mm -hmm. and, and moving things around. Um, but it's not, we found it's not that hard to build in levels, um, on a budget the way James did it. He's got, uh, high density foam and he's built some really large hills that sort of fit into the corner you know so they have a right angle on them and then they stretch out and they have been sanded down and he we put over like a 
a thick, um, it's not quite felt, it's more like a fleecy material that goes over the top, like mm. a sandy colored fleece. Yeah. And it, it, it's heavy enough to hug the, the, the terrain underneath the, the hills. And so it fits nicely. You don't get the sort of um, the ripples of fabric that where it's bunched up. Mm. And he did an amazing job of, of making a, a sort of sandy colored piece of felt look as, as good as a printed, um, you know, gaming mat. Nice. Um, he did. He did. He did such a great job. And what he, he's really simple techniques. He he laid it out in the garden, I believe, mm-hmm. and sprayed it from a distance. Little bursts, little irregular bursts of dark brown. So you got you know little, little darker earth areas. Mm-hmm. Um, he did some areas that were that were green, um, just very tactful light sprays with a with a rattle can down onto it. Some closer, some further away. Then on the green areas, which are clearly grass. Yeah. He um, padded bits of PVA glue and little bits of flock. And if you're light and tactful enough, it starts to look really quite natural. And now the piece de resistance on this particular gaming mat, he had three of them, in fact, because we stretched out over 15 feet, as I said. Um, he went to Crete a couple of years ago, and the, um, one of the key locations in the Battle for Malame is the, the hill that lies a little inland mm-hmm. from... Uh, from the airfield, Hill 107. And James, um, perhaps against the advice of the sort of uh, uh, Fish and Wildlife Bureaus or whatever the equivalent is, he brought a load of sand back from Crete. Wow. And stuck the sand in patches over (laughs) over the mat. So which is like, that's either the coolest or the saddest thing you've ever heard of, I think, um, for dedication to, I'm voting uh, to for a cool. gaming mat. Yeah, exactly. I'm I voting thought it, cool. It impressed, it impressed me. Um, and so he's put the, the actual sand, the actual colour of sand from from the, uh, Hill 107 onto the mats that we've used for Hill 107. And then when you, when you lay all the, those mats out, and they're nice and generic, you can use them for, you know, North African games or Italian games perhaps. Um, when you lay them out and you put all the other terrain over the top, it looks so much better than a a monotone fleece mat or uh, yeah. or whatever. And you've also as as lovely as some of the other gaming mats are that you can buy the sort of neoprene ones. They are flat, you know, the mm-hmm. mouse mat type ones. You can't really put hills underneath them. Um, but it, it just made such a such a great effect. Um, there was a, it was a it's the first show game that I've done actually where you go and stand around and say you know talk to members of the public about the game and uh, invite them to play a little a little bit you know a sort of four, 40 minute mini game so I was slightly intimidated because I thought you know what if someone comes and tells me uh, my Volshmiega are painted wrongly or my uh, my olive groves are too small or some <laughs> deeply insulting uh, yeah, personal exactly. attack about my uh, my modeling um, but it was that kind of thing that little little detail to be able to say you know that oh, you feel that sand what do you think about the texture of that sand mm. it's the real deal it's uh, it's really from there so that i thought it's a really really novel thing that um, is. and it, it hung yeah it hung together well and it, it was pretty cheap i think apart from the holiday to crete to have having yeah, to it acquire it. Mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> um it was it was pretty good and um yeah most of the other terrain was uh it was, it's all about scattering and i think the way james and i were looking at it uh, you sort of get, you know, stand back and get a get a gauge of the table. Does it look natural? Does it look realistic? Um, from from an aesthetic point of view, I think uh, something Uber Gruber Dave Hunter said to me a long time ago. He said, if a game 
table looks real. If it looks like the town is laid out in a sensible way, then it goes a long way to making the game work. Right. Um, and, and we sort of certainly found that, that that was the case, I think, with this one. Lot, you know, the little, um, it's, is it called like reindeer grass or something? The sort of mossy mm-hmm. scatter stuff that you can get. Yes, it Lots is. and lots of time. Rip that up really, really fine and scatter lots of that over the over the gaming mats as well. And it just creates an irregular look to the slopes and the, the flat areas because... Obviously, you don't need every area on a gaming table to be a wood or an enclosed walled compound or anything. You need some areas that are large and flat. Mm -hmm. So when enemy troops have to move through them, they're in the open. You need that as a mechanic within the game, don't you? But often those kind of areas, they they look a bit boring, don't they? But it's just tiny little things like, like little bits of scatter. Um, dropped across there and then you've got the little bits of flock and you've got mm-hmm. the bits of sand and you've got the, the slight variation in tone it just makes a big difference to making the table really pop I've found um, so I think that's what worked well with the, the Crete game that we ran um, you know different tiers and breaking up the monotony of, uh, of, of uh, plain plain mats I think yeah, yeah, well, hold on. There's like you've said a few things that I, I desperately want to add to. So, um, I I when I started my uh, terrain building process because I used to run a lot of events and I'm I'm maybe running a few in the future. Uh, I used to you know buy nice fleece um, material or a, a nice cotton material that was thicker. Um, it wasn't just a sheet. It it had some some tactile feel to it. Um, and I had a white yeah. one and I have a series of brown ones that I use for the desert as in tanny colors, but like a yeah. browner one and a lighter one, um, but still, you know, sandy um, that I have terrain that goes on the top of. Um, in recent years, I've, I've picked up some, uh, some more quote unquote, more professional uh, gaming mats. Um, but one of the mats, mm. so I, I've been, I've been buying from deep cut studios and I really like their stuff. Um, because I'm yes. a, an apartment dweller, I couldn't necessarily go with the neoprene or, I, to be honest, I don't really like the PVC. I think it's too shiny and I agree. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a fan. Um, but you know, Deep Cut does a machine washable cloth mat um, for almost all of their six by four tables. And I thought, this is great. So I've bought a few of those. I've loved them, especially as an apartment dweller. They fold up yeah. to the size of one of my t-shirts. Um, and they're just yeah. easy to put in the box with the other train. It's nice. It's very, they take up way less space than my old um, cloth covers. But I recently ordered, um, I had some credit with the company. And so I bought a cigar box battle mat. Um, one yeah, of their, me too, yeah. Yeah, one of their fleece mats. It's the, it's called the Winter Town Map, and it's a 6x4. Oh, cool. But they call it a 6x4 Plus because yeah. it's designed to do exactly what you were just describing. It's, it's made to be bigger than a 4x6 table, so you can put hills under it to give it texture. Um, now, I yeah. haven't gotten it in the mail yet to see exactly how much space there is, um, but I'm very interested in that. So, it's, um, yeah. I, I just ordered one as well. Uh, and I've, I've been using it for the last month or so. Mm. One of their new, the newer wave of them. And they have a, I think they have like a thicker, I don't know what the, the terminology is. It's like a thicker, um, shag. Is that the word? Oh, is it? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you mean. That's a good descriptor. Yeah. 
so you if you run run your fingers across it you sort of you can steer the uh, weather whether the fibers are lying and create a sort of rippled grass effect if you oh, know what i mean that's cool the, the one i ordered is called grasslands 2 mm-hmm. and it's exactly as you described it's six by four plus i want to say there's probably another four inches on either side oh cool so nice. rather than 40, 48, it's probably more like 56 wide, mm-hmm. you know? So, yes, you get, when it sits on the table, it hangs over the edge, and it, it is a thick, a thick fabric, so it, it sits really nicely. And you've got enough wiggle room. If you want to put a large hill underneath it, it's not going to pull the edges in, so you, you're missing a bit towards the edge of the table. They're really, they're really nice. They are expensive, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Thankfully, I had some credit, um, which is where I came in and bought it. Um, but I still ended up spending a, a fair bit. And uh, Australia seems to get hit with the quote-unquote Australia tax of A, getting it shipped, and then B, the exchange rate. So yeah. we, we tend to get it, – it was ugly. Um, I don't know how many more of them I'll be getting in the near future, um, but I I am glad that I have that one coming. Uh, I'm looking forward to putting it down. and Because I've recently – I've also been buying up um, in the last – Six to eight months, um, whenever I can see one, a battlefield in a box, ruined urban terrain, I've been picking up piece after piece after piece. And I've actually got almost a, a full table of uh, ruined urban at the moment that I'm thinking of using right. with that mat. Um, w- yeah, that would work really well, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Just like a winter wrecked city. Um, yeah. With throwing throwing bust, a few walls. Yes, exactly, right? Um, I what I really need though is either a fountain for the middle of because there's a little town square section, um, yep. or maybe some statue piece to go in the middle of that. Yeah, because looking at point. it, it just yeah. seems. I know you were saying a second ago that you need some open space to go across. I do put that into mm. my tables, but having a great big ugly open spot in the middle, especially when it's one of those places where you might consider it a road in bolt action. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. That I feel like that needs to be broken up a bit. So yeah, that sounds that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, yeah you could do all sorts with. It's one area I've not gone into massively. I've got a few bits of ruined terrain, but it's more it's more Italian looking. But the way mm. you're describing, it, yeah, you could do you could do Russia, couldn't you? You could exactly. do um, Shanghai, Eastern Europe. Yeah, Shanghai. Yeah, yeah, and um, and Bastogne as uh, as we, we just exactly. mentioned a second ago. Yeah, that that'd be really cool. Yeah, I'm really good. excited about putting some of that down because I, I had yeah. a number of desert tables previously and I had a quote unquote winter table and I had a quote unquote. Um, well, I guess not quote unquote. I have, I had a so I have I bought a ton and we're talking maybe five years ago. Um, Flames of War Battlefront, whatever, was having a sale or of some sort. I don't know how I got it, but I bought something like five sets of their bocage, which is a little bit small for bolt yeah. action scale but it's still tall enough to obscure most vehicles slash all infantry so sure it works to a degree um especially if you but start pa- yeah. putting some trees in there and you know you have some fields in between them i i think it works brilliantly and it's pre-painted it's resin it was really nice and easy just for me to put down um and part of my problem i always wanted a bocage table but bocage, a lot of the bocage you can go out and buy or make um, sheds. Um, yeah. And I, I just, what I, given how I need to pack up tightly, um, the Flames of War stuff just wraps really beautifully in bubble wrap, and I just stick it in a box and I'm done. Whereas if I had something bigger or that I needed to cushion and put properly away so it wouldn't destroy it, eh, 
I, I'm happy with the, the the option that I went with. But um, yeah, yeah. It sounds good. Yeah, I've been doing something else that I think is uh, becoming slightly trendy as well. Mm, what are you um, doing? Ha- have you experimented with teddy bear fur yet? Oh, I was about to say either you're about to talk about teddy bear fur, or you're going to reference Brad Pitt's haircut from uh, <laughs> that that unfortunate tiger movie again. Anyway, sorry, God Fury. Um, so yeah, talk to me I about this because I'm experimenting keen. with my hair. Um, yeah, it's 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 very interesting stuff. I first came across it i was sent by sammy scenix a sample of one of their rivers um that mm. they've been selling sammy scenix is a small uk company who uh they sell teddy bear for based terrain at the moment and the the river set it's like a it's a strip four foot long that obviously goes from one long table edge to mm-hmm. the other and they've they've sort of modelled in a water effect down the middle, and I'm look I'm looking at it, examining it, and it's brilliant. It's a great river because it can roll up and basically fit in your coat pocket. It's that small, um, and and I thought I could make some stuff out of this, and uh, so I went on. I don't know where you would source it um, down in Australia, but I went on I went on eBay UK, and I bought a, a, a measurement. It was a kind of a slightly odd measurement, but it was enough to cover four by three. Mm-hmm. And it was about, it was less than 30 pounds to get that much, um, which is really, it's, you know, for, for that much uh, terrain potential, I don't think it's too expensive. Um, I bought this actually, but not for bolt action um, or for World War II. I bought it for a game called Congo, uh, which is a, a, a sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, high adventure game set in uh, darkest Africa during the colonial uh, period and that's played on a four by three half the missions in that game are in the jungle half of them are on the savannah so i i, I bought the teddy bear for for using as a savannah um mat but actually it works really well as a massive crop field for world war ii games as well and you buy it and the i guess the shag on uh, teddy bear fur can be variable as well the length yeah. of the fibers that is um, but the, the stuff I've got, it's probably, it's over an inch long, I think. And I ordered the sort of tan color and it's not the, the stuff I've ordered. It's not monochrome. It's not, um, too bland. You've got sort of lighter white fibers in there and dark fibers. So it looks like a really kind of bleached crop field. And all I had to do to it was cut it to the right dimensions and then spray it with different types of paint. Kind of in the way I was talking about before I got a, a dark brown, spray can and went over and did patches and then just brushed across it with my hands as though I was sort of fussing a Labrador, Aww. you know, just tease it, just, te- yeah, <laughs> it was just teasing the fibers and you sort of run the, run the fibers one way and the, the paint kind of binds the fibers together. Um, oh, the other thing you have to do before you start painting it is you have to brush the hell out of it because it molts. Oh, does you go it? over it. Yeah. You go over it much like you are, um, combing uh, a Labrador, get an old brush or an old comb and go over it for ages and you get massive, massive clumps of this fur. And once it's stopped kind of um, shedding everywhere, go over it with a dark brown and that that's kind of sinks into the underneath sections, then go over it with a green as well. And the effect I've got out of just, just using a couple of different spray cans, then I think I went over with a, like a desert tan over just over the top as well by the end. And you get this real natural variation and... Um, and it's a lovely looking terrain piece. I've used it for chain of command in Normandy where I think there's a temptation on bolt action tables to put down an A4 sized crop field here and an A4 sized crop field there. Yeah. 
where in reality a crop field is going to probably be as big as your board. Yeah. Um, so I, because yeah, because I've got a four by three teddy bear fur mat now, I sort of drape it over most of one side of the board, and that is all light cover. Um, rough ground and i put a road going through the middle of it mm-hmm. so that you know um and it's it, it looks it looks the part and it's um it's not too expensive either That's so it's not it's not that bad it, the only bad thing is that it's impossible to roll dice on i was gonna say i i've played on a few tables like that and i've always struggled it's like a lot of well plastic models sometimes are so That's light true that as they well. fall over um and yeah. rolling dice on it's a bear but my god they look good um, yeah, I, I played on quite a few in some of the Sydney events. Um, now Mike, if anyone in Australia happens to be listening to this and knows where I can get some quality teddy bear fur, um, I need a small amount. Um, so there's a wonderful terrain company in Melbourne called Knights of Dice. Um, and they sell the pin markers that a lot of local players use figure cases, but they have wonderful terrain lines. I've been building a bunch of their terrain for Star Wars um, because they have a Sandport Hydra line that is perfect for Tatooine in my mind. So I've been, I painted up a number of those buildings and some generators from a different company from TT Combat. And um, I'm, I basically put that on one of my desert tables and bam, I have, you know, I already have the hills, I already have the walls and everything else and just change out the vehicle, uh, sorry, the, uh, the buildings and voila. Um, but they, uh, Knights of Dice, getting back to it, um, have a, a cheap line. It's called Tabula Rasa. Uh, and they have a series of huts, almost Viking-like huts, but they have windows mm-hmm. and doors. Um, and it, it, it looks very European. Um, and I bought a, a series of those. Uh, I have three of them, and there's more coming to the shop literally as we speak, um, and I'll probably buy some more this week. They're very cheap, something like $11 each, um, maybe 15 something really cheap by comparison to other mm. companies. They're very simple, but um, the one thing that I look at when I look at and kind of, I'm like, oh, I really want to change, because they're so cheap and simple, um, I mean, they do have nice texture as far as the banding on the corners, if that makes sense. Um, mm. So there's like extra layer, um, extra texture and different things to paint. But the the roof is just two pieces of, um, M- was it, uh, now I can't think of the material, uh, MDF. Balsa? Yeah, it's, it's okay. MDF um, that just make, um, you know, a standard V, inverted V roof shape. Yeah. So I want to put teddy bear fur on it um, and seal it so it looks like a thatched roof. But I need the material to do that. You do, Yeah, you only need a small bit, don't you? I have seen people do that, and it looked very effective. I've seen yeah. that done, and it's not worked so well. I think you need a relatively uh, sort of uh, shallow depth of exactly. of uh, fabric coming out, you know, fur coming out. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it looks, it looks a bit over over dense i suppose but yeah that would work because it, t- it takes glue and uh, and paint pretty well it will it should flatten down quite nicely um yeah. but yeah i think that would work you don't need much at all do you if you yeah. want i think i might i could have a look for some scraps if you like brad and i could send you enough to do a roof with it well i i do need i do need something like five or six roofs worth and um i can probably find i mean 
We probably have a teddy bear shop somewhere in Melbourne. Um, I, I just need to find it. Um, have you got an old teddy bear you can kill? Oh, see, that would... I, As a primary school teacher, speaking to another primary school teacher, um, yeah. I, I do extol, you know, whenever we go on school camp, the kids, you know, because I teach grade three, four, five, and six. Um, and when you go on school camp, especially in grade five and six, uh, five in particular seems to be the spot where this happens most um you're away for an entire week so you go away on this um, adventure camp it you know kids get very tired because you're out doing crazy activities like giant swings um you know rock climbing um rowing um you know just orienteering and so on yeah exactly hiking um swimming in the beach i mean doing stuff that just exhausts you um if you're just not used to that those particular activities i mean you do that all week and so by the end the kids are you know feeling a little worse for the wear maybe a little you know they get homesick um and there's always yeah, that for moment a lot of them, it'll be the it'll be the first time they've been away for a lot of them as well won't it exactly well no we we so we we build them up and so the camping you, uh, program gets more more away ever so it's longer and longer each year uh, I don't know why I've suddenly lost the ability to speak, but anyway, um, you get to grade five and you know, you always say, you're telling the kids what to bring to camp and without fail, I always say, all right, now you need to bring a stuffed animal. And they go, what do you mean? You need to bring a stuffed animal. <laughs> what do you mean? I'm, I'm too big for that sort of thing. Do me a favor, bring a stuffed animal. I'm not doing that. Well, okay, don't that's not you. That's a, that's on you, but I know I'm bringing one and I do. <laughs> I have, I have a little stuffed rabbit, um, that was given to me by a friend in college as a joke. And somehow it made its way in my in one of the boxes that got shipped to Australia. And when I first went on school camp, um, I, I told the kids to bring a stuffed animal. And that was like grade two or three. Um, and, and they were, you don't, you don't have one. And I said, uh, yeah, I do. And I went home and sure enough, I did. So I brought it with me. So now I have my camp rabbit that sounds strange if I say it. I can't believe I'm saying this on a podcast, <laughs> but I actually have a little stuffed rabbit that I bring on every school camp. And it's a little filthy thing at this point because I just take it to these camping expeditions. Um, and the right. rest of the year it sits on a shelf. Um, but it is my little stuff so <laughs> to make a long story rabbit. short i would feel funny about killing a teddy bear after i spend such a long time telling students that stuffed animals are you know important um especially uh, on school camp. come on i bet mr fluffy's got some big ears i bet you could uh, i bet you could line a few uh, a few thatched roofs with uh, mr fluffy's rabbit is hey uh yeah it, it, it's actually quite a small rabbit but um yeah oh i see okay yeah. all right, and it's, all right. It's, maybe it maybe in 10 mil yeah exactly <laughs> and it's uh, i think my my dog would probably prefer i just handed jim the rabbit and then that would be the end of the rabbit so uh i know he occasionally looks longingly at the shelf thinking that uh my stuffed animal is his toy uh, which actually brings me to one more off-topic discussion before we quickly jump back. Um, I do want to say for our listeners across the world, uh, Happy Lunar New Year. I meant to say it on the last episode. Um, it is the year of the dog, which is why I say that. And um, as the co-host of this show, uh, the silent co-host that is on every episode who sits by my foot every time I record, um, is a dog. And so... Needless to say, we have to acknowledge our loyal and stubborn friends and say, happy year of the dog, everyone. Anyway, moving on. Happy uh, year of the dog. It's year of the dog. Take it and uh, go with it. Uh, so 
Yeah. Congo, you've been playing. Tell us about this game. This is a great little game. I say little game, which perhaps may, it sounds a little bit disparaging, and I don't think it should. I say little game because it it's easy to get into. Uh, if certainly if you have some jungle terrain already, it mm-hmm. makes the makes the the leap towards doing it very very easy. It's by Studio Tomahawk, who you may be familiar with. They did uh, Muskets and Tomahawks. Oh, yeah, they yeah. produce Saga as mm-hmm. well. Saga is by them. Yep. They're a French company, and. Um, I uh, I play do role playing games. Uh, Call of Cthulhu, which is 1920s, 1930s, mm-hmm. mostly adventurous games, and uh, you know you travel all over the world. And so I got quite a few 20s, 30s, some colonial looking um, character figures. And uh, I thought, what could I do with these? I could perhaps use them for exploring uh, Africa. And so I picked up the book, and it's an extremely well produced rule book. It's a bright orange book, and you actually get with it eight scenarios, which are all produced on kind of uh, printed out newspaper style oh, nice. um, handouts. They're really good. You, you, you take them out and they fold out to nice and big. And so you can lay that next to you while, uh, while you're playing the game. And then you have the book separately. So you're not, you know, flicking back and forwards through uh, the, the central rule book all the time. It also mm-hmm. comes with all the tokens. There are quite a lot of tokens. And uh, yeah, because it's French, reading it is quite interesting because it's been translated clearly into English. Yeah. It's very funny. They've got a really great sense of humor in the translation. There are one or two little odd bits of translation which seem hard to um, mm-hmm. hard to fathom at first. And I think something went wrong with, between the me- metric system and um, and the imperial system of measurement because it actually says it's, play- it's supposed to be played on a six by four in the book where it's demonstrably not because all the pictures and all the advice on their website and so on, it's a three by four game. Um, okay. And it's easy to it's easy to get into because you you don't need that many figures. You can play it with depending on the faction you choose about twenty five figures. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's quite a low entry point. Um, have you seen the kind of figures that you use? I'm just imagining um, sort of pulp era models, sort of interwar mm-hmm. models. Is that what I'm? Because I know at one point you mentioned that I think you mentioned that on your podcast, and I, I quickly flicked over and took a look online. And that was, I think, what I saw. Am I barking up the right tree? Yeah, they're certainly pulpy. I've played it with interwar period models. It's not That's not actually the setting of the game. It's a bit further back. It's more like 1890s, more Victorian okay. um, era. Some of the technology is, uh, you know, it doesn't matter which period you're playing there. If you're using the natives, they would probably look very similar at that stage. And if you're playing it in the 1920s, um, you know, you're probably going to see a few, uh, a few more maybe automatic weapons. There's no difference in the rules. It's just an aesthetic thing. I've been using those slightly later figures because that's what I have. Um, but pulp is a good way to describe them. Yeah, it's it's high adventure. There are four factions. You either play the the white man expeditions, as they're called, which is uh, representing one of the colonial powers uh, in Africa. Um, you know, the Germans or the, the French or, or the British. Mm-hmm. Um you can play as the Sultanate of Zanzibar, and these are Arab uh, slavers from the island of Zanzibar. Um, and uh, it's down on the east coast, actually, uh, east coast, lower, lower down in Africa. Mm-hmm. And you can, uh, you can play as two native factions. You can either be the uh, forest tribes who are, uh, they have um, cannibals and witch doctors and stuff like that, or you can be the 
forest kingdoms. I think I've got one of those names slightly wrong. The African kingdoms list, where they are the more, the slightly more um, militarized and organized um, African groups. And I think you probably you, you have to approach it if you are writing a game like this with some degree of sensitivity, because actually the the, the horrors of colonial. Yeah. Uh, European intrusion into into Africa, you know, it's it's not lighthearted, it's not tongue in cheek. What actually happened? So they make that clear at the start of the book. They say this game does not seek to right any wrongs or address the the real serious issues here. This is a a lighthearted game that tries to capture the spirit of uh, adventure and exploration, and um, we hope that our players will approach it in in that spirit. Uh, and and if you if you're comfortable with doing that, it's a really rewarding game. It, um, you assemble a column, uh, which is there's a points system uh, where you and you choose either you know typically you could have um, uniformed soldiers who are expensive and very good at shooting, mm-hmm. or you choose Ascari who are more like mercenary um, mm-hmm. warriors uh, with with rifles or muskets. And then each uh, each faction has its own more characterful unit choices. The um, the African kingdoms can choose married warriors or young warriors or unarmed warriors who may have spears and shields. The the forest tribes, um, the really wild faction, they can take witch doctors and um, cannibals and pygmies. Um, the Ascari, sorry, the uh, the Arab faction, the Sultanate of Zanzibar, they can take slaver units and um, bundukis and people like that. Uh, and the, the Wyman expeditions can take adventuring heroes. And then on top of the main choices that you've taken, the, the, the footmen, the sort of the bulk of your force, you choose characters which are sort of tagged on at the end and characters have different special abilities. Mm-hmm. It's the, the, the mechanics of the game re- work really nicely, Brad. Um, yeah, there I'm just. I've been looking about, at the models while you've been describing them. Yeah, uh, and they boundary makes the official line. Yeah, I was gonna say these look very familiar, um, and that would be why I think it's the sculpting style. But the models yes. are really nice, and I'm a sucker for any game where I can take a gorilla. So um, absolutely, I noticed yes. that was in the adventure pack with some crocodiles, a lion, and exactly, um, yeah, some clergy they... and some porters, yeah. Yeah, they work. Um, you can, t- yeah, the, the porters or bearers, as they're known in uh, in the different lists. They you attach them to a unit of Ascari or, or whatever. And if during a random encounter or a scenario encounter, you find some loot, which might be it might be that you shot a lion and you want to take its pelt back for extra points, mm-hmm. or maybe you found a buried artifact. Normally, that slows you down if it's a bulky item, and your bearers can carry it for you. Um, so it stops you from having to move slowly. Uh, you can also, if you get shot and lose a character, you can have the bearer die instead of one of your soldiers. Oh, oh wow. poor guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Studio Tomahawk work with foundry miniatures in the UK to, um, and so all the photographs you'll see in the book are foundry models and they do specific packs like the adventuring pack you just mm-hmm. you just mentioned. Foundry make those uh, and they're lovely figures. They're at probably higher end of the price pricing scale for 28 mil metal figures but they're very very good there are other alternatives though which fit in extremely nicely cobblestone yeah i would say some, um, cobblestone you know, makes great interwar models absolutely and the um north star produced a range called africa mm-hmm. um 
And a lot of those are sculpted by Mark Copleston as well, um, that just sold as a, as a North Star product. Mm-hmm. And that they sell packs which are clearly designed for Congo as well. They will sell a pack with a, a column, you know, a pre-built set column ready. So you buy it. The, the, you know, some of them cost about £20 and you've got enough figures to, to play the game. Uh, and, they, yeah, they are, they're lovely figures. And you, the, some of the weird, you, you're mentioning animals. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's, there's an expansion for it now, which allows more animals to be used. And when you go in any dangerous terrain area during a, uh, a scenario, there might be maybe five dangerous terrain areas mm-hmm. on the table. You have to roll on a table. It's a D100 table and all sorts of random things can happen. You might encounter an animal at that point. Um, there's a token that comes out that can be drawn during the game and you roll on a little table and you might get attacked by a lion or hyenas or... A gorilla. And then one of the scenarios is actually called the King of the Apes, where there's a giant gorilla in the center of the board. And one of the factions has to try and uh, kill it and capture or wound it and then capture it. Um, So, yeah, there's some really, really nice features in that game. It's the the mechanic, the the mechanic you play out during every turn is the really clever bit. Uh, When you start the the game, you typically got most of the scenarios are about eight turns. Mm -hmm. And um, within each turn, you have three action steps which means during your turn you will play three cards Mm -hmm. now everyone starts the game with a choice of seven cards and they're exactly the same so i've got the same seven cards and i'm looking at them you've got the same ones and one of those cards will be fire as in shoot with Mm -hmm. three units one of them might be fire with one unit and move with one unit. Mm-hmm. One of them might be do a rally type order with one unit and move with two units or something like that. So they all have different levels of use depending on the current situation. Mm-hmm. They also all have a like an initiative speed. Yes. So the, the really, really good ones are normally quite slow. And the, the simpler ones that maybe allow you to do just one thing or two things, they can be played more quickly. Mm-hmm. So at the start of the turn... I choose three of those cards that I'm going to use in that turn and keep them secret, hold them up like a poker hand. Mm -hmm. And you do exactly the same. You choose three of your cards out of the seven, put the other ones aside. So we've now got for this turn, we've each got three cards and you, you play it like poker. You play them at the same time. You both choose one, put it down on the table. Mm -hmm. And it might be that I've given a card that lets three units fire and you've played one that lets three units move. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this definite sense of, it's like playing a game of poker because you're trying to, you're not only trying to work out what's the best thing for you to do at that current point, but you're also trying to work out what your opponent's going to do um, and try and play the card that might be quicker than him. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, once you play through those t- uh, three cards, that turn's done, and uh, you refresh and you take another three. So, so hold on, can you play the same? So let's say you were doing the three units moving, and you do that in yep. your second turn, for example. Can you do it in your mm-hmm. third turn as well? Uh, within the second turn, I'm going to play the, each card that, of the three that I've chosen. I'll once. play them once. Right, but yeah. then can you and they go, they, and then go on back the, in the pile? Yes. Okay. The, yeah. You, when you get to turn three, yep. yeah, you take all the cards that you've then used, put them back, and you can choose. You can choose again. Yes. So there are certain very useful cards. I play the White Man Expeditions, so I've got a lot of muskets and rifles. So I almost always end up picking out the 
shoot with three units card mm-hmm. for each turn, depending on the scenario. And the scenarios work in all sorts of different ways. Some you are grabbing objectives. Some you are trying to rescue a hostage. There's one with a river down the middle where you're trying to um, collect uh, these. Uh, it's like uh, some loot has fallen in the mm-hmm. river and you have to get in, but you have to avoid the crocodiles and then you have to get them off the opponent's board edge. Uh, there are some which are more more of a straight fight. Um, but yeah, the different cards come in different handy depending on uh, the mission that you're trying to achieve at the moment. But it, it, it flows really nicely. Um, nice. And I, when, I call it a, when I call it a little game, it, it's quite, if you both know what you're doing, you can play through it in an hour and a half, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the, it's not got the depth of rule books and expansion sets that something like Bolt Action or Warhammer 40K has. It's fairly contained, but every single game i've played of it i'm playing it mostly with dave and and with barry Mm -hmm. every game has been very very entertaining and very different um and as i say there are there are eight scenarios that come with the base set you know the uh the rule book and the the tokens and so on and they're all really good it's it's narrative it's it's well themed it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek as well and uh yeah it's it's a really it's a really interesting game it's a bit like the best the best part of bolt action you know the mm-hmm. hard choices thing when you you don't know which unit to activate well yep. well congo's like this it's about which card do i play right now you know yeah the reason i asked if the the missions sorry not the missions those cards recycled was um so there's a game which i'm sure you've heard about star wars legion that um is about yeah. to drop and it seems to be a lot of people are talking about it, but they have a mechanic that's very similar to that. And every turn you, um, before you put your chits in a bag to um, pull them out, much like bolt action, you mm. actually have a system very similar to what you're describing, where at the beginning of the game, you have access to certain generic orders that your leader can yep. do, or that um, certain characters like Darth Vader has a particular couple that he could do. Luke Skywalker has a couple he could do, and they they're very different, so they're characterful. But um, yes. it's very similar in each. Um, so of the I think seven that you have available to you in the six turn game, um, you can pull a card and play that at the beginning of your turn. But when you play it, your opponent plays theirs at the same time, and there's yeah. as you were saying, one is faster than the other one. So whoever has mm-hmm. the one that you know, is easier or is uh, more simple to pull off, we'll go first. And then that sort of sets it up for the turn. Um, And then, of course, you start pulling units out of a bag and going, you go, I go, you go, I go, as far as units. Um, And I thought that was a really interesting mechanic, and I hadn't really seen that. Um, But as you described that, clearly they got it from somewhere else. Um, But yeah, this sounds like a really fun game. Um, I, like, it... I I I, w- I would can see that they would have to take a little tongue in cheek to it, given yes. sort of the dark side of imperialism. Um, yeah, yeah, I yeah. say wincing, but um, it I mean it is a really interesting skin, as you would, to a game system. Um, one yeah. that I mean we we all read the books, um, you know, watched the movies at some point or another um, of similar. Ex- experiences even if it's not interwar even if it's before that 
Um, yeah, yeah. Indiana Jones yeah, is lost, very the lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indiana Jones, the Lost World. Exactly. You know, right? so Arthur Conan Doyle stuff. Exactly. Yeah, uh, Quatermass. There's a character called Mary Kingsley in the expansion who was a yes. real Victorian woman who went and explored uh, darkest Africa. When doing that as a as a European, as a white person, was was brave enough in itself. But she did it as a as a single woman in her thirties, and she climbed. Um, uh, I think it was Mount Cameroon she climbed in reality. Wow. So I've gone away and, and and read about her as well. And it's it's a nice. Uh, I've never done any gaming that's been in you know uh, sub-Saharan mm. Africa before. Yeah, did I? And uh, yeah, it's it's really great. I've bought loads of. Um, cheap aquarium uh, leaves, mm -hmm. uh, you know, shrub type grasses, and mm -hmm. and you get them on eBay from China extremely cheaply. And mm -hmm. they the posted there's like free postage to, to from China to here, and you get loads and mount them up, and you can make quite a convincing jungle quite cheaply. Nice. So okay. So from what you're saying, this isn't maybe a game with all the depth in the world. So this maybe maybe is not your mainstay game, but it, it also sounds like it's a step up from a, a beer and pretzels type game. Am I sort of getting definitely. the feel for that right? Yeah, oh, definitely. I think there's probably as much depth in it as you could want to bring because I, I, I bet you're the, the same as me. A lot of my enjoyment from playing Bolt Action came from reading around it. Yes. So my hobby time is what I class as all the you know all the books I'm reading and mm -hmm. all was being podcasters planning you know episodes to talk about different things. So yeah, while there's not as much to buy officially for Congo as there is you know with the extra scenarios and things, there's plenty to go at and mm. it, it's a very clever game. That's the the key bit. The the steps through the game when you are choosing which card to play at a certain point mm -hmm. and choosing which units to activate, it's very, very clever. And it, I've played it, the typical thing that we've been doing, I've had Dave over to stay at my house and we've played Sharp Practice, which is a very big, thoughtful game with lots of models on the board and mm -hmm. takes a few hours we do that have a couple of beers and then in the evening when we're feeling slightly merry on a few beers we play mm -hmm. congo because it's um it's a little bit more little bit bit more easy rules wise you don't have to look anything up really mm -hmm. um and but it's still very engaging and and fun and roll i love rolling on the random event chart it's got like a D, &D thing or a role playing thing you know you've gone yes. into some dangerous terrain you have to roll and some of the things that happen are good you know, you've you found a mystical lake or something and rejuvenates you and you remove your shock points. Mm -hmm. um, they're actually called, it has a similar, it's just, uh, similar to um, Bolt Action, actually. You draw stress tokens, which are like pins, mm -hmm. um, but each one has a different symbol. Uh, so if you draw a stress token and it has a, a bow and arrow on it, that reduces your shooting skill by one. Oh, or you draw one with a... Yeah. With a foot on it, it reduces your movement to half speed. Um, uh, so they, they will affect you in different ways. And you can rally to clear them off in the same way as you would in bolt action. But obviously that takes an activation. And you can do your witch doctors and uh, other characters can do spells mm -hmm. that put extra stress tokens on the enemy, you know? That's awesome. Um, if you, yeah, it's strictly, there isn't really any supernatural in it apart from the idea that the witch doctors can actually cast spells, you know, mm -hmm. they cast, you know, they'll make all the monkeys in a tree, throw a load of feces at, 
a, a certain group or they'll bend over and do a spell that sends a horrible gaseous wind in your direction and you uh, or your troops might take a, a, a stress token or something like that, um, which is quite enjoyable. Like a you know a tree full of monkeys throwing feces at people. I mean that absolutely. Uh, you may be selling the game more than you mean to by just saying that last little bit. But I mean it yeah. is one of those games where it taps into as you were talking about an unbelievable um, reservoir of resources and mm. stories, and it, it's a rich world which. You know, some games, um, I mean, I know recently I've been talking with some folks about who've been playing Kings of War, loving it um, rules-wise. It, it's a beautifully put-together game, but some of the people are, are sort of falling out of love with it because from a fluff standpoint, it just doesn't have the, I don't know... The, the depth. The, yeah, the depth, the rich world that people can just, you know, yeah. constantly you know, fall into and be immersed in. Um, whereas this game sounds like it's it's just taking an, ex- an established trope and tapping into it, and in doing so, um, it it completely bypasses that problem, which is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I've done quite a fair bit of background stuff on it that you know, just to stir up my interest. You heard, you've heard of Doctor, Li- you know, Doctor Livingston, I pres- mm-hmm. presume. Yep. You know. Um, yeah, who you know the Scottish explorer who went off and got lost in the darkest Congo, and Henry Morton Stanley was this uh, American journalist. Uh, actually, I think he was Welsh originally, but he pretended to be American. He was a journalist who went off to find him mm-hmm. in uh, in the heart of the Congo, and that it's that that era of you know the the last frontiers of exploration mm-hmm. before the world is completely mapped. You know, of, of there still being these unknown, uh, scary places in the in the heart of Africa for uh, you know, bumbling uh, superior white people to uh, to stumble across and claim as their own. Um, so you you obviously you play the characters as they are intended. I have a um, my leader of my column is uh, is a, a bold lady, a female ginger haired lady called uh, Elizabeth Ginger Baker. <laughs> nice. uh, not which is a slightly an homage, uh, a homage to the drummer out of uh, Cream, but mm. uh, also uh, I, uh, I I play her as a very strong minded female character. Dave, on the other hand, he has a uh, an African uh, kingdoms group oh is it the forest tribes i can't remember and he has a um a, a really lively character this sort of mad witch doctor as his central character who claims to be the um descendant direct descendant of jesus and to have uh, um uh, all sorts of qualifications from harvard and cambridge and so on um and those two have become over the maybe four or five games that we've played of this so far they are becoming firm enemies these two characters so every time we we approach the game we are role-playing these characters you know pissing each other off and uh, dave writes up a very biased um battle report after it and he's got he's got a blog where he he writes it up the battle from the perspective of his uh, his column leader which is mm. uh, it makes it really fun you know that's awesome and i can imagine dave writing that as well just having that um that a bias, I guess, is the uh, the nice way Absolutely. of saying that. The, yeah, the narrative device is the un- unreliable narrator yes. character, which is really it's it makes it really really funny um, to uh, to review the missions. Right on. Yeah. Okay. I have to. I'm gonna have to check this out. Um. I. I yeah, I'm a little I'll, drowning I'll a, in I'll games, but yeah. No. Yeah. I've been. I'm actually looking at the website while we've been talking, and uh, yeah. Nah, I need another game. Like I need a hole in my head at the moment, especially with Legion <laughs> about to drop and everything pre-ordered. But 
Oh, this does look like fun to read. Uh... It is. And it's actually it's the, the production quality on the Congo book is very high. It's got really, really good artwork. It's actually a very funny book um, to read as well. The humor translates, or maybe it makes it even more funny because it's been translated. Um, but go up, join, there's a Facebook group called Congo Gaming Adventures in the Heart of Africa. It's not very big. There's about 600 members on mm -hmm. the group, but I always post up pictures there of our games. And uh, Dave has posted links uh, to his, uh, his blog that mm -hmm. uh, wraps up the, the scenarios. So jo join that and have a look at some of the pictures of the games that people are, uh, are playing. And I think you'll I think you'll enjoy it. Oh, definitely. Oh, son. Ah, love it. I'm going to have to <laughs> look that up. I, I do love how um, as games, as either games are created or as, um, I don't know, as I find things, I, I'm finding these communities or it's just funny how these global communities are becoming more and more prevalent through social media. I mean, yes, of course, we knew that, but... Um, so I've been following Gasland since its inception, the Osprey games um, convert your matchbox cars to play post-apocalyptic car wars, yes. Mad Max-esque, blah. Um, and I was, I think, in the first 50 to 100 people on that Facebook group. Um, I joined it as soon as I could, and it, it was really yeah. interesting to watch people doing it. Now they're... They just, it keeps climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing. Like, congratulations, guys. We mm. hit another milestone. Congratulations, guys. We hit another milestone. And just the level of hobby that has come out and the community that has just developed around this fun little game um, using giant air quotes around little, um, yeah. it's, it's great. And I love the game and I need to play more of it. And I look at all these people playing games going, man, I got to get, Got to get my buddy Dave back in town so I can play because uh, Dave Monroe and I have been playing quite a bit, uh, quite a bit, and it's just how am I, how am I not playing this right now? It's a great game. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what's but, the um? What's good. the um? um for, it's like it's. I'm really not familiar with the the sort of background for Gaslands. Is this post-apocalyptic sort of Mad Max type thing, or is it more like Demolition Derby? Uh, it's a little column A, a little column B. Um, there's. Yep. So the it's it's a science fiction type universe where um, the rich Terrans have sort of left Earth and gone to Mars um, and everyone is sort of Earth is sort of a, a barren wasteland of problems um, and they've. This reality television has, you know, it's basically is think of the running man, except with battling yeah, dual yeah. cars. And so it's sort of built into that. Now you can have cars battling in the wasteland or you can have cars battling in an, in an arena. Um, and it's mm. got, it's really clever the way that they've, they've adapted the game. So you can change um, how the missions, the way you're playing actually changes the way the game plays. Uh, and I really, sure. I'm really enjoying that. Um, I played, uh, quite a few games with Dave and then school started back up and then, you know, we just haven't had a, t a chance to get back to it, but I kept playing with the same cars and now I'm thinking, Oh, I really want to do something different. Like maybe a motorcycle gang or cause I have the models or, um, sure. maybe I take a bunch of old matchbox cars and turn them into Ram cars or maybe add some rockets or, you know, and you just going, Oh, how about this? How about this? How about this? Yeah. And when you start thinking about it, it's, it's, I have this giant box of bits that I can just put on a $1, $2 matchbox car. Done. Yeah. Um, and it's Absolutely. just a lot of fun. And it's a cheap rule set. Um, you can get it 
through a number of places. And all you need to do is photocopy the templates in the back of the book, which I did and then laminated because I'm a teacher and laminating is my middle name. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's perfect. And uh, it, it plays a little bit like X-Wing as far as put a template down yep. and then move to that. Um, and in that way, it's quite clean. But the way that the this the the skid dice work um that mechanic really and it wasn't until i played it with dave a few times that we figured out that the the moving system while still being quite quote unquote clean and well defined is unbelievably yeah. variable um in a good way like you can really maneuver sure. around things in it's i was a little worried it would be a little boring just to move it around um using those templates but because you have to then maneuver your car using the the way you roll the dice, um, you know you could you could pull a slide and end up doing you know turning ninety degrees. Um, you could mm. end up spinning out completely and losing all forward momentum and crashing into something. Um, you know there and it's incredibly cinematic. Uh, there was I was about yeah. to finish a game against Dave and was thinking I got this I got this I got this, and then Dave clipped my tail with his Ram car. Um, and it, it forced me to spin out, which then I flipped like a bad eighties, you know, 18 yeah, yeah. episode. Um, and in the process, my, my car blew up and I just went, Oh, come on. Like I had this, all I had to do was crawl across the finish line, which I was about to yeah. do. Nope. Um, boom. And it was just, it was, it's just fun. Um, excellent. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I unpredictable mean, as well, yeah. yeah, it is, but it, it's the way that you can control um, the, the the dice, the way you shift gears and which dice you're rolling and which ones you can re-roll depending on the situation is very strategic. Um, so it's mm. a thinking game and a fun game at the same time that's both um, clean and a little bit, you can monkey with it a little bit as well. Really cleverly done. Um, I have to give the author huge props on that because it is a lot of fun. Um, I just need to get back to playing it because I've been hammering through bolt action vehicles of late to trying to get the out of Sahariana sure, done. But, um, sure. and yet, as you yeah. were saying, you know, we always have these little distractions. And so I've been painting Soviet slash Finn trucks for the last couple of weeks as well. And, cool. um, I'm putting together a 28 millimeter GI Joe tank war game with uh, a friend. So, um, <laughs> excellent. That will be interesting. Um, I have some, 3D printed resin vehicles on their way to me right now. Uh, and I'm hoping to have my G.I. Joe Mobat tank uh, in my grubby paws by the end of next week, which I will hopefully have the Auto Sahariana done. And then maybe I can paint something that isn't that, but who knows? Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Sounds excellent. Yeah. I right found, um, I, I just I just looked up what Dave's, Dave's blog yes, please. to uh, read nice. about. So it's very entertaining. It's called drlafua.wordpress.com and that's doctor the full word d-o-c-t-o-r and then lafua is spelled l-a-f-u-a awesome dot wordpress.com if you if you have a look at that he is the very definition of an unreliable narrator if you ask me but there's there's photos from a couple of our games and he wrote them up um and yeah he's he's very funny I would have yeah, to I, only because he's not here. And in his defense, I would I would ask on his behalf. Really, do you do you really <laughs> think it's or is it pure accuracy? 
I think you need to take a long, hard, good look at yourself and and determine yeah. if you think that. Sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, this is exactly this is exactly right. <laughs> Dave's got the most persistent um, uh, and uh, ag- aggressively um, ironic sense of humor, I think, and mm. um, it it really it really shines in uh, in his blog with his character, Doctor Lafour. Um, yeah, you, it'll take you about half a half a pages worth of, uh, of text to just get through his qualifications from the various um, various uh, universities that the doctor apparently attended um, before returning to darkest Africa to um, to run around with a load of pygmies in the jungle but um, yeah you'll you'll enjoy it if you uh, have a look at drlafford.wordpress.com brilliant awesome well I will also put the uh, the link to that on our page after this yeah. episode drops so oh Sam it is so good to hear your voice again um, I hope that well, you uh, see my- I I just hope that you're back on the mic uh, at some point soon, um, so I can absolutely yeah we'll be looking forward to it. Um, is now yeah. unfortunately my time has kind of come to an end, and I feel like my microphone cord might be giving out. So yeah. my question for you is: before we go, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Because I'd hate to shortchange anything that you have to say because I love hearing you talk. Oh, this is this is uh, embarrassing. Yeah, no, nothing especially, Brad. It's been lovely to to have a chat and catch up with you. Um, the Down Order podcast will be back sometime soon. Yes. I've got two. I'll, I shall I shall tell you what. I've got two episodes. Um, all the notes written up for them. I just need to get some guests together to come and talk about them with me. I've got one. Mm-hmm. Um, on uh, British uh, paratroops, specifically on the uh, the taking of Pegasus Bridge. Um, so I'm going to do an episode on that. Uh, I think some. I think. Um, Andy Singleton's um, podcast, I think they covered that. It's Operation Deadstick. I think they did that fairly recently. Um, they did. So there'll be, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd already written up all the notes over the last year of uh, planning them, so I'm still oh. doing it. But um, yeah, I haven't got around to listening to their, their podcast of it yet, but I will do. But yeah, there's one of those coming. So plenty of British Airborne stuff to listen to. And I've also got one about um, Operation Flipper as well. Have you heard of that? Okay, have you mentioned this? Because I want to say I've heard someone say something about this. Was it you? Um, I can't remember. I might have. No, uh, there have been one or two people posting about it fairly recently. Bruce Hamilton on uh, on the Bolt Action Groups has been talking about doing it. Yes, it's a commando. It's a commando raid. That's right. Fairly early war commando raid on the north coast of Africa to try and kill Rommel. Um, They'd got intelligence that they knew uh, an HQ. Uh, position in uh, behind enemy lines but quite near the coast um, in uh, northern Libya and they sent in a load of commandos in two submarines so they the submarines um, came to the surface and they they got on the the little you know the little kayak things Mm -hmm. came to shore and they were going to try and kill Rommel Um, so there's a there's there'll be an episode about that there's a lot of coverage about the commandos in general, because I haven't really talked about them on my podcast before, and then we'll go through the uh, the scenario and how it. Yeah. It's not a not a massively bolt action oriented type scenario, but you could do it. You could do it, and we. Uh, I'm going to talk about how, my ideas on how you could do that. So, I've certainly got those two episodes coming up uh, sometime in the future. Well, there's also, I, I I shudder to say, yet another British paratrooper podcast coming shortly from somewhere that. Oh, will really? <laughs> we'll become uh, ov- uh, become um, <clears throat> apparent in the next couple of weeks. So awkward. Absolutely. Well, I'm not going to be looking. I'm not going to be going as far as Market Garden. My my okay. focus uh, my focus is on um, is on D Day really and the, and the paratroops there. So I'll yeah. try and not have uh, overlapping uh, 
content. I think ours. Can. I think ours will be more um, a, a discussion of bolt action, um, how British paratroopers can be played appropriately oh, and historically, if you want to list or tactically. Sounds good. Um, because I one of the things that I'm hoping to do in future episodes of this podcast and a few others, um, hint hint, is um, to talk about how to play bolt action. It's not just, I mean, everyone talks about the listing and we talk about it like it wins games. Um, and it, to a degree, um, you know, that it definitely helps. But how do you actually play the game? Um, and how do you play historically to maybe match a particular play style for an army that um, might match the way you list, for example? Um, I think it goes beyond listing, and I'm looking to explore Absolutely. some different yeah. parts of the game. Because I think like, maybe some of the conversations that we've been having... I, I, I think you would like. I'd like to go somewhere else. Do some something new and exciting. Um, You're absolutely right. I, we ninety percent of the time when people talk about the game and whether a unit is good or bad or makes for a good name, a good game, or it's broken or whatever, we talk about the units and people don't talk about the terrain and the boards mm-hmm. and very importantly the missions. The missions. So Thank if you, you. I think that would. What if you are playing the British paratroops and you want to have a really British para themed game? The mission you choose is as important as the as the list. You could argue, you know. Agreed. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I, I think I'm gonna pull the plug and just say a few quick things. Thank you very much, as always, for listening. Um, we at Cast Dice, uh, I guess that's just me and the dog, uh, would like to thank you from the <laughs> bottom of our hearts, and again, wish you a happy Lunar New Year. Um, uh, in a future episode of Cast Dice, maybe the next one, maybe the one after, I will be talking about actual terrain on the tabletop in bolt action um, and maybe tactics around using it more effectively um, strategy and you know what the effects of those terrain pieces are in a game and maybe how you can you know take advantage of those depending on what your mission is Um, in addition there will be you will hear my voice maybe in another place um there's been a lot of uh, behind doors talk and I'm looking forward to hopefully announcing something very exciting through either our Facebook page um, or through the SoundCloud account that's attached to this podcast uh, in the next week or two. Uh, that Facebook page is, of course, Land O Misfit Toys, um, home of the Cast Dice podcast. If you just type Cast Dice, C-A-S-T, Dice, uh, into Facebook, you will find us. Uh, as always, thank you so much for listening. And Sam, thank you so much for coming on. It is always a pleasure talking to you. And as I said, you I, too, always, my friend. I always have a, a seat available at the table for you, mate. You want something to talk about? Come on by. I know you've got your own you've got your own party, but you're always welcome at mine. And and likewise, yeah, it's lovely to uh, to come on and chat. Brad, I, uh, I'm going to go and uh, get some breakfast now. <laughs> Amen, and I'm going to go to bed. But on, uh, on yeah. <laughs> that note, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I hope your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages stay cold. And more than that, I hope you have fun when playing games. This is Cast Dice saying good night.
I'm gone, and I try.